Do you know what the secret is to keep a baby's skin healthy? The secret is a diaper that doesn't leave skin wet. You've heard me talk about Pampers Swaddlers on our podcast many, many times now, and that's because Pampers Swaddlers is the diaper for healthy baby skin. Pampers Swaddlers absorbs wetness better than the leading value brand and provides up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. And if you're a fan of Pampers, you've got to check out their new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes, which clean better than Huggies Natural Care and are five times stronger, so they resist tearing during a diaper change. With Free and Gentle, mess meets its match. And if you're like me and you love saving and getting rewarded for something you gotta buy anyway, like diapers, don't forget to download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. You can redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers free and gentle wipes for healthy baby skin. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Welcome to ABG. Asian Boss Girl, a podcast for the modern-day Asian-American woman. My name is Helen. I'm Janet. And I'm Mel. And I'm Nadia. Nadia Okamoto is a social entrepreneur, activist, and speaker for the menstrual movement, the power of Generation Z and youth activism, and for overcoming adversity. She is the founder and executive director of Period, the largest youth-run NGO in women's health and one of the fastest growing in the United States. Nadia also ran for office in Cambridge, Massachusetts in 2017 and recently published her debut book, Period Power, a manifesto for the menstrual movement. She is the chief brand officer of JUV Consulting, a Generation Z marketing agency based in NYC, and was named to InStyle Magazine's The Badass 50, Meet the Women Who Are Changing the World list, alongside Michelle Obama, Ariana Grande, and Dr. Christine Blasey Ford. She was also chosen for Teen Vogue's 2017 21 Under 21 as one of the faces of the future. Nadia is currently on leave from Harvard University to focus on scaling, period. Welcome to our podcast, Nadia. Thank wow. you so much for having me. I was like, this is crazy just to see how much you accomplished in such a young age. Yeah. Oh, thank you. Welcome to LA. You're thank here for you. just a day. We really appreciate you coming and visiting us. Of course. It's so warm here. Really? I'm honestly not used to it because I've been living in New York City in my time off and also Portland, Oregon, which is like rain, rain mm. and like darkness. Mm. <laughs> you know, so it's been really fun to be here, even if just for a short time. So maybe Nadia, if you can just give us a little bit of background of yourself, other than the intro that we just gave of you. What is the period movement for our listeners who might not know? I basically have found myself in doing a lot of period activism in my life in the last four years. When I was 16, I founded this nonprofit called Period the Menstrual Movement. And it started as a simple goal of just trying to get period products to people who needed them. My passion for periods came from this really personal place of in a time when my family was experiencing housing instability, talking to women who were in much worse living situations 
situations than I was in and hearing their stories of using cardboard and toilet paper mm. and brown paper grocery bags to take care of their period, right? Mm. So it was going from that, wanting to start an organization, fast forward about four and a half years, we're now this big movement that's fighting to end period poverty and period stigma through service education and advocacy. So what that looks like is we distribute period products to people in need, mostly homeless and low-income menstruators. We're trying to change the way people think, talk, and learn about periods through education. And we're now working in policy from the local to the federal level, trying to get period products into schools, into shelters, into public restrooms, and into prisons. Also trying to work on repealing the tampon tax, which exists in 34 states, including California. Oh my gosh. Oh. Yeah. I didn't even know that that was uh, yeah. a thing. So, yeah. Well, I've heard about it, but yeah. I didn't. Yeah. So when I started the organization, it was 40. So we've made some progress. Yeah. But 34 U.S. states have a sales tax on period products, considering them luxury items, like non-essential mm. goods. Meanwhile, products like Rogaine and Viagra are considered essential goods, right? So it's like old man hair growth and erections become this, like more priority yeah, than right. over half of our population feeling clean, confident, capable 100% of the time. This work that we're doing is just trying to fight for this idea that menstrual hygiene is a right and not a privilege. Mm-hmm. And, you know, these period products aren't luxury items. Like this is something that should be treated just like toilet paper in terms of accessibility. Right. But we have a long ways to go. Like, I mean, we hear news every week of this misconception of period products being luxury items. Mm-hmm. Like just two weeks ago, a GOP representative in Maine was quoted saying that period products shouldn't be free in prisons because they're not meant to be country clubs right and then that bill to provide period products for free in state prisons was rejected right Mm -hmm. so we're seeing this still constantly Mm -hmm. in 2019 even though people have been menstruating since the beginning of time yeah a lot of our work starts from this idea of like we need a cultural shift to change the way we think and talk about periods well, it's also probably because a lot of the people running the government is made of, of men, right? Yeah. So they don't actually know that this is not a luxury item and this is something that all women should have free access to. Yeah. So exactly. what are you guys doing specifically with the period movement to try and change that? So you said it went from like 40 states to 36 or 35? 34 now. 34 yeah, now. And yeah. what have you guys done to sort of contribute to that? Through our programs to date, period has addressed over 550,000 periods through product distribution. So that's distributing period products through shelters and community partners. We've done a lot of cultural work just in terms of social media, doing events on the ground. To do all of the work that we do, we mobilize young people. So we now have a little over 375 campus chapters at universities and high schools around the U.S. and abroad. So we've really grown from like two 16-year-olds on the what the fuck they're doing to like now this huge network of young activists in the period movement. We have policy programming, mostly at the local level. So we have toolkits that are built and we're seeing students use these toolkits and kind of hand-holding them and supporting them in any way we can to get period products into all the school restrooms, either on their campus or within their school district, right? So we've seen about six pieces of legislation pass in the last few months, which is super exciting. And an example of that is like the Grant High School chapter in Portland, Oregon, got their school board to invest $25,000 dollars a year in piloting a program for free period products in all the Portland public schools, high schools, right? So doing that policy work or, you know, UC Davis is an example of working with their school government directly to get period products into their dorm restrooms and starting to see that replicated around the country using our toolkit. What made you target like universities or youth in terms of uh, spreading the movement? It was completely accidental. Like when I started this organization, it was really from this, like, I have a goal of just getting period products to homeless women, right? Mm -hmm. And my original goal was 
was like 20 homeless women in Portland because I could name 20 homeless yeah. women, yeah. right? And on the first day we went out with period products, we ended up staying there for like four hours just on the street with a line of homeless women who had lined up being like, oh my gosh, I heard like down the block that you're giving out period products. And then we just realized the need was so much bigger than we anticipated. Mm -hmm. So went back to the drawing board, started giving period products out through shelters and doing sort of like this spider web distribution. And we're just naturally posting about it on social media, right? Mm -hmm. And just like telling the world what we were doing through our social media accounts naturally as like teenagers, right? Yeah. In the Instagrams becoming mm -hmm. this like daily part of life. Like we were just sharing it. Within a few months, we had hundreds of messages from students all around the country and journalists who wanted to write about and talk about what we were doing because we got into this in 2014 and it wasn't until 2015 that mainstream media called 2015 the year of the period, right? Like oh. Newsweek, NPR come mm -hmm. up with these pieces that like say 2015, it's the year we're going to address period sigma, right? Mm -hmm. So because we jumped in like right before that, we were sort of the first ones in, on Google when you started researching what people oh, wow. were doing. Yeah. So we were just sort of timely and then literally it was just a common sense step of these people want to get involved in their community let's just write down what we did in ours and say do this in yours and call yeah. it a chapter playbook right so from that that's how we accidentally grew into this global conglomerate of period chapters which has been really exciting to see I mean the power of social media is kind of something that stuck with me since the beginning mm -hmm. so on my gap year now so I'm spending a lot of my time on period growing period but I actually just stepped down from executive director to hire someone else on so I could focus on the advocacy media part of it build my own brand and publish my book but I'm also chief brand officer at Juve Consulting which is a Gen Z marketing agency that works with now over 20 fortune 500 companies and we help companies like all the Unilever brands and Timberland, you know, these different brands that are trying to market to Gen Z hire actual young people to work on their social and digital campaigns. Oh my God, that's nuts to me. <laughs> it's been really fun. We're yeah. like speechless like, right now. Like, Dang, girl. <laughs> No, it's been really fun. And it's been like a whole new world of like working in the for-profit space, mm -hmm. right? And yeah. I mean, I'm 21 and I'm the oldest person in that company. And what? We have, yeah, we have over 100 consultants now from the ages of 14 to 22. We relaunched it this summer and it's founded by me and a few other students who are taking time off from Yale and Princeton. And mm -hmm. we just opened up our headquarters in Times Square. We hired on 14 people full-time for this summer. So it's growing really fast. We grew about 1,000% in the last six months in terms of revenues. And we just launched our rebrand a couple weeks ago. Kind of like what I've learned in period and running for office and publishing this book was like the power of media and mm -hmm. social media mm -hmm. and it's been really amazing to like work behind the scenes with these huge companies like I mean even Adidas too to like teach them how we understand and use social media in unique ways yeah because I work in social media too and mm -hmm. like I feel like I'm a millennial so Gen Z is like oh my god it's just a fascinating like generation to me because yeah. you guys are so active on social media yeah and I think like why I became really passionate about Generation Z too is because I think Generation Z specifically is kind of the young generation where you like cannot deny that they exist right yeah. it's not this thing that you can skip over because mm -hmm. gen z is now the largest segment of a population in the history of the world we're 26 percent of the global population and we're 46 percent of the total media audience right mm -hmm. so when you think about where brands and these people are trying to reach you know, whether it be cable or social media, we're almost a majority of that, right? Mm -hmm. And at the same time, I think that we represent this like socially progressive ideals pushing forward. Like our nicknames are the genderless generation and the plurals. And the mm -hmm. genderless generation comes from this idea that less than 50% of us identify as totally heterosexual or cisgendered, right? Mm -hmm. So we're this generation that's like questioning gender and racist social constructs and like really emphasizing what makes us different and like the beauty in that. And then also the plurals because Gen Z is like, compared to millennials, like millennials are stereotyped for thinking in terms of the I pronoun, right? Mm -hmm. Like when you talk about the future, like what's best for like what my life is, Gen Z is sort of credited as like thinking in we all the time. Like 
representing us as like us and making decisions in terms of what's best for like my community or my family or like thinking beyond yourself. Do you think that's a thought that maybe that all Gen Zers have, or is it people who are more like activists within the community? This is not something that's in the activist space. These are from like studies that are done on overall Generation Z. Mm -hmm. But I think that activists start to recognize it more because we have to speak out in terms of our group. We're trying to fight for a population beyond ourselves. Mm -hmm. So I think the activist community might recognize it more. But I mean, when I bring up these stats to like Gen Zers who aren't in this space and in completely different fields, I think they sort of have this wake up call of like, oh my gosh, I've never really recognized that within myself. So you've are working with people in the public and private space and media all over the place. What is the difference in the way each of these parties is receiving kind of your messaging? About periods? Yeah, and just the movement of the youth and everything. I mean, I think that brands are excited to work with young people because they have to, right? Like we're the biggest consumer group now. Forbes just said that we control $146 billion in the spending industry, right? In terms of the money we influence or that we control and the money that we influence with our parents, like we're a big consumer market. So I think there's that. And so there's this excitement of what young people can do, but also in realizing the power of social media and seeing like March for Our Lives change history and make history through like digital movement, right? And Black Lives Matter and like the Women's March, all of these things coming together on social media and being organized. Like how the fact that four of us can sit around and make a podcast that's going to reach thousands of people, right? I think that there's this excitement about it. I feel like we're getting educated. I I think for me, it's just like, I don't get to speak with anyone who is in the Gen Z generation. So like, we don't really get to, we're surrounded by We don't interact with a lot of I mean, I'm on the older side of Gen Z too, right? Because Gen Z starts around 1996. I was born 1998, right? Mm -hmm. So Mm. I'm very much on the older side. And like, even my younger sister, who's five years younger than me, thinks I'm old and like, don't understand social media, right? That's kind of a testament to like, how fast social media trends are changing, right? right? Like for me, me and my friends of my age group are like no a Rinsta to a Finsta, right? Like, do you guys know Finsta? Yeah, like, I just learned you know, about Finsta. Everyone has a second Instagram account, so you have your public one, that's oh your Rinsta. Oh terms that I don't then, know anymore. Yeah, and then your Finsta or your, like, Sinsta, as it's more called on the West Coast, is, like, your second Instagram account that's oh. pub- private, so I only let, like, 10 people follow. But my sister, like, her and her friends are starting to have, like, a Trinsta, like a no. third level. Wow. So, like, a third level of privacy. So, actually, part of what Juve has done is we're hired by these big companies to give presentations on what a Finsta is and, like, how it's influenced the way we understand authenticity right because now how you curate yourself on your rinsta is so different from how you like are unfiltered on your finsta and what trends in terms of influences and celebrities like why cardi b is rising is because like her rinsta feels like a finsta right because it's like this unfiltered (laughs) like you know just completely like stream of thought and like that's stuff you post on your finsta so Mm. and in this culture like finsta is your close friends right so the reason i love cardi b and like why i I love love her when i follow her i'm like i feel like i'm her friend because i see this deeper side of her that's unfiltered in our social media world when you're part of that finsta vibe that means you're at this new level you've made it into someone's finsta following right chrissy teigen's my finsta yes exactly no no, i've seen here but okay so i had a so my brother's uh, Gen Z. He, he was born 1997. And him and his girlfriend talking about like Finsta, Rinsta, whatever it's called. Wait, what is Finsta? What does the F stand for? Fake Insta. Oh, yeah. fake yeah. Insta. Okay. Fake is that, is that the first one or second one? Rinsta is the real Rinsta's one. Rinsta is your real Insta, then Finsta is your fake Insta. But it's interesting. It's more called Finsta on the East Coast. On the West Coast, it's more called Sinsta, like a secret Instagram. Sin- Sin- secret oh. or second. Yeah. Okay. Oh, my God. So I was telling my brother, and he's like, yeah, uh, like, we're, I'm going to post this on my second one. I was like, what are you talking about? He was like, you don't have a second Instagram? I was like, no. He's like, what about, what do you share to your friends? I'm like, my own Instagram is I share, I don't know. I feel like I'm kind of unfiltered on my regular one. Mm-hmm. 
But I don't know. I think you get filtered. Girl. <laughs> no, I mean, like, I- is your Instagram private or no? It's public. Yeah. Yeah. But like, I think a lot of and what people say about like most older millennials is most of their Instagrams are private. Right. So they don't need that added level of privacy. Mm. Right. I think one of the really interesting things about Gen Z, too, is like Gen Z has never had to reconnect with anyone. My mom uses social media and is like, oh, my gosh, I just reconnected oh, with yeah. my friend from 30 years ago in high right, school. Like, right. I've never had to reconnect with anyone because we've been connected on social media since <laughs> Since, yeah, since we entered the social media space, right? It's like I meet these people when I'm on speaking tour and they're like, oh my gosh, like, how are you? How is this? Like, how's your puppy? How's your mom? Like, they like know Everything about me about life, yeah. in a way that like, I think my mom's like, why would someone who's not your friend know that? Like, how do you not know their name and they know this about you? And I'm like, oh, well, I, I posted about it. Yeah. You know, like this idea of like, what does it mean to be an authentic friend, right? Mm-hmm. Which yeah. is why like micro-influencers and why Juve specializes in micro-influencers, right? So gone are the days of brands trying to reach macro influencers like, brands aren't targeting using influencers who have millions of followers anymore they're looking for people who have like 15 to 20,000 followers because of this new idea of it's so easy to follow celebrities following celebrities like a non-attainable life it's like mm. the life that you look up to that you're mm-hmm. sort of inspired by but when you see like your friend buying something or your friend experiencing something you're more likely to try it out right yeah. so this idea of like brands wanting to reach micro influencers to show their friends mm-hmm. what they're doing is like a new part of this wave yeah that's that's so true because actually my last job we were trying to like I think we we're trying to talk like those macro like the top level yeah. influencers but they weren't working for us so because we're like people just watch the content to watch it exactly yeah. but then there's another no one's taking action yeah. and you get a high response yeah. rate too if you're like oh where'd you get that from you can, you're, they'll yeah, likely yeah. respond back to that's you. true exactly mm-hmm. yeah wow so that's like my life outside of period has been like I've sort of been balancing these three worlds of like period work like you know, growing my own platform and like now growing this company. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I just like I got a crash course in like this market. <laughs> <as I did. laughs> Interesting though. Okay. Right, so we have so many questions about period, but I feel like that was a really good. Um, yeah. The big tangent. <laughs> no, but I know but it's that. for me. That's I, I find it's this super, I find super yeah. fascinating because this is the stuff I like, like to learn about. You know, it's, it's, I think it's also because we do see it right on social mm-hmm. media, but yeah. then for someone to sort of just summarize what is going on in a way that yeah. you just did, it's like, that is exactly what is happening. Yeah. Literally yeah. Gen Zers are like driving the market right now. Yeah. With both period and then also like social media, this might seem kind of out of whack, but coming from your cultural background, like how do your parents react to what you're doing? So I'm like, okay, this sounds really bad. I like am not very Asian mm-hmm. culturally at all. You know, like mm-hmm. I don't speak another language. Can't name a single holiday for you beyond like new- Lunar New, new Year. Year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, so I'm half Japanese and half Taiwanese. Mm-hmm. Right, but I'm still figuring out if I say like Taiwanese or Chinese. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, but, it <laughs> yeah, it depends. Right? Yeah. I I don't know. So my dad is immigrated from Fukuoka to the U.S. My mm. mom was born in Indiana, oh, and okay. I'm a single mom. I grew up with my dad until I was about ten, and then lost contact with him and his whole side of the family when mm. I was about seventeen, because mm-hmm. he was found guilty of child and sex abuse, like by child protective services, to an extent that like we can no longer have contact with him. And my mom's not really in touch with her parents either so because of that like my nuclear family of like me my mom and my sisters for the last at least like decade or so has been completely isolated from anyone who's from another country Mm -hmm, right mm -hmm. so for us it was very much like finding our own way and like building our own 
family culture, yeah. right? So, and I think also because my mom was born here to very, you know, the typical like, you know, tiger parents from yeah. Taiwan, like she's the opposite with us, oh. right? Mm. So for us, there was always the expectation of like, I will go to college and I will try to go to Harvard. My mom also went to Harvard. But oh for, her, for her, it's always been like, you follow your passion because her parents never talked to her about femininity and gender and sexuality and, oh, wow. you know, mental health and all these things in her family. And she always tells us about that experience growing up. But because of that, she was, she tried to be the opposite with us. So mm. I was the first one of any classmate to know what sex was. Oh, I was really? like the first one to get sent to the principal's office because I told everyone what sex was. Like, <laughs> you know, like my mom would actively tell us in American society, like people will think you're submissive. People will think you're quiet. I grew up with parents who wanted me to be quiet and wanted me to be submissive to men in my family. Like I think my mom really painted that portrait of like a pretty patriarchal Asian culture background. Mm -hmm. So for us, she tried to stress the exact opposite, right? Mm -hmm. So she would tell us going to school, like if someone thinks you're going to be quiet, you be twice as loud, right? Mm -hmm. Like, and I think that's why me and my sisters are the way we are, right? Like I am you know, this outspoken activist. My middle sister is like a visual artist who's won like every national award for doing art for social justice, like Black Lives Matter and like presidential scholar for art and follows art and is taking time off for art, right? Which is wow. like not usual in, mm -hmm. you know, Asian yeah. household, right? She's in high school? It, she just graduated high school. Okay. Um, and my youngest sister is like, she's actually performing at Carnegie Hall next week in opera singing and she's 16. Like, you know, my, my family like <laughs> went very into art and creativity yeah. and like activism. Yeah. And I think a lot of that was because my mom had this background of like not being able to do that. Yeah. Your mom sounds amazing. Yeah. Like yeah. that sounds like I feel like I love my mom. Yeah. She's like, I think that's for her to raise you guys as a like single yeah. mom, three three daughters. Yeah. And to be so strong and so talented. That's just amazing. It built this big confusion within me and my sister of what it meant to be Asian. Mm. Because my mom really raised us with no help. My grandparents were not supportive of the marriage we're not supportive of her having me because mm -hmm. my mom had me one year into law school right oh. so I think my grandparents saw it as like we gave up everything oh, wow. for you to be a successful lawyer and now you're gonna have a baby yeah. right so there was not a lot of support so I think because my mom had that sort of resentment I grew up with a lot of narrative from her side of like not liking that culture that mm -hmm. she came from right mm -hmm. and my Taiwanese side of the family you know being half Taiwan and half Japanese like a whole other yeah, conflict no, yeah. thing right like my Taiwanese side of the family would tell me stories growing up of like growing up in houses that were occupied by Japanese soldiers and talk about Japanese people being assholes and like imperialists mm -hmm. and whenever I did something mean or like selfish it was like the Japanese side oh, of me oh, yeah. man, and then yeah. the Japanese side of the family who actually lived with us in New York City for a little while and that I was much closer with just like really shit on Chinese people right so when we walked through Chinatown my Japanese grandmother would like hold her nose because of dirty Chinese mm. people or like oh when we would take baths she would say like wash the dirty Chinese off of you so I hated the Asian side of me yeah. right yeah. So I actually, after I ran for office, I wrote this article in Next Shark about like running for office and getting death threats for the first time of, for being Asian was what pushed me to be like proud of being Asian because I grew mm -hmm. up being so ashamed of it, right? Mm -hmm. Because within my own family, it wasn't good to be Japanese or Chinese, right? Within my own family, like, if I was quiet, it was because of like the patriarchal, like yeah. internalized ancestral like mm -hmm. patriarchy, but also like growing up in New York and then Portland, Oregon, which is the whitest major city in yeah. the United States and growing up with like constant microaggressions and macroaggressions for being Asian, I think yeah. built this like 
hatred of my culture Mm -hmm. and confusion about what that was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I have like so many questions for you. You said, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So I'm assuming your family gatherings were like, not like, did you have, there were no family gatherings. Yeah. So So, Christmas or like Thanksgiving. No, no. Like I, my parents got divorced when I was nine, but before then we weren't like a happy nuclear family. Right. Mm -hmm. Like my childhood experience was like, my mom was always fighting to protect us Mm -hmm. because there was like a real danger there. Mm -hmm. Right. That you weren't aware of when you were younger. No, the thing is, is that it was happening to me. I just didn't know it was abuse, right? Like I was sexually abused by my dad from growing up until I was 15, but I didn't know it was abuse, right? right? Like, you know, when I say it out loud now and I'm open to talking about it, like when I say out loud what happened, like I'm like, okay, yeah, that's abusive. Like if anyone else told me that happened to them, I'd be like, oh my God, go report it, yeah. right? But when you grow up with it, it, it happens to you and it's your dad and you feel protective about it. Like, I, I just think I, I never really am, like accepted that mm-hmm. it was abusive. But I think like my childhood growing up, it was never like a, we have family gatherings. The only memories I have of like, even my grandparents being in the picture was always like, it abrupted into some fight. We haven't talked to the majority of our family in years. My mom, her background is incredible. Like she did corporate law when I was really young, which definitely like burnt her out mm-hmm. in a way. And then she built a business for my dad that was all about ice sculpting. Mm-hmm. So my dad is like really well known in like the New York event space. For ice sculpting? Yeah, for ice sculpting. And it's like on Food Network all the time. Then my mom, you know, when we moved out to Oregon, kind of started from the ground up. Like she gave Mm -hmm. up everything for soul custody of me and my sisters and went into nonprofit work. So that's how she kind of gave a lot of her knowledge to me Mm -hmm. when I was starting. And then when she parted ways with her job, that's when we couldn't afford to live in our home. So almost about a year, we didn't have a home and we're like kind of couch surfing with our closest friends, like renting out our own place to try to Mm -hmm. make money and survive. And my mom sort of got back into like business and consulting. If you run a small business like us, you probably struggle with tedious administrative tasks. If you have a great idea for a business, what's holding you back? If the thought of all that admin work is overwhelming, we've partnered with HoneyBook. They'll help you get your plan off the ground. HoneyBook is an online business management tool that lets you control your client communications, bookings, contracts, and invoices all in one place. If you're a creative freelancer or small business owner, HoneyBook helps you stay organized with custom templates and automation tools. You can even use HoneyBook to consolidate services you already use, like QuickBooks, Google Suite, and MailChimp. Over 75,000 photographers, designers, event professionals, and other entrepreneurs have saved hundreds of thousands of hours a year. It's your business just better with HoneyBook. Right now, HoneyBook is offering our listeners 50% off your first year with promo code ABG. Payment is flexible, and this promotion applies whether you pay monthly or annually. Go to HoneyBook.com and use promo code ABG for 50% off your first year. Get paid faster and work smarter with HoneyBook.com, promo code ABG. like you had a, like a rough period with like when you're a couch surfing and stuff and you seem like such a confident Asian American woman did you have moments of like it's not oppression but like very oh my gosh every day like yeah, uh, yeah for sure I mean I think when you go through that like so much of the trauma is internalized it affected me and my sisters all in different ways and my family's super open about this like this mental health stuff you know my younger sister was hospitalized for bulimia for 
over a year, right? My yeah. other sister like went through this phase because the abuse from my dad to her was very like about neglect and mm-hmm. the one to me was like very much sexual and physical. But we all process it in different ways. And I think that's how I like, I know that everyone processes in their different ways. Right? So for my sisters and my mom, like they very much process in this internal, personal way, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's a lot of therapy. It's a lot of like time by yourself. It's a lot of creating and trying to think out what happened to you. Mm-hmm. For me, when I was processing, I just became a complete workaholic, right? Like mm-hmm. when oh, I was 16, busy. yeah, yeah. keeping myself busy not thinking about things until I crashed and like went to the hospital right like in high school when everything started kind of coming back to me I literally was doing like 16 clubs I was like doing pre-professional ballet and I was on the boys varsity baseball team and was like starting a non-profit and growing period and like applying to Harvard and all of this stuff and was just trying to stay busy it wasn't until my junior year that I like actually passed out from exhaustion and like went to the ER and like that's when they like ran every test and were just like okay you're really exhausted so I ended up having to go to therapy for a long time for cognitive behavioral therapy which Mm -hmm. is like for PTSD Mm -hmm. and like really confront what had happened to me and which is why I can talk about it so openly now I have to catch myself there are time periods where like I will not sleep because every time I want to go to sleep I feel unproductive or Mm. I feel like I'm worthless or I feel like I'm not like doing anything Mm -hmm. and it doesn't matter how much success there is I always feel really insecure about like my worth because I think sexual assault and kind of like abuse affect you in this way of like where your worth comes from right like Mm -hmm. I think for so long I felt like my worth came from like my body and like me saying something didn't have influence so that's why I think public speaking and doing media is so fulfilling to me because it makes me feel like I have like this This voice voice and power power, right But that being said, like mental health is complete journey. Like that doesn't go away, right? I'm in a really good place now. And a lot of that is because I can talk about it. But like mm-hmm. all through high school, I struggled with self-harm and like cutting myself. It felt like I had a reason to punish myself. Mm-hmm. I go to the gym like every day because that's my way of like reminding myself that I'm like taking care of my body physically, right? Mm-hmm. But like, I mean, every day I struggle with imposter syndrome a lot. And mm-hmm. I think that comes with like a little bit of depression of like, no matter what I do, no matter what success comes my way, I always have this feeling of like being a fraud. Yeah. Like, oh, we, I don't- yeah yeah exactly like (laughs) I don't deserve this or like oh my god they're gonna realize that I'm really not worth it right like Mm -hmm. I mean even today I had a meeting with you know these amazing talent managers who were like you're amazing we want to sign you and the whole time I was like oh god they're gonna realize that like all of this is fake like I'm gonna do something to fuck this all up and then they're gonna Mm -hmm. change their mind like don't get too attached to this idea I was literally feeding myself this narrative on the way here in the last 40 minutes coming here I was just like instead of celebrating it I was like freaking out like this was not supposed Mm -hmm. to happen you know well, we will be the first to tell you that you're super oh, incredibly yeah. accomplished. Oh, yeah. thank you. I also suffer imposter syndrome. I think all of us do. Um, it very much is an Asian woman thing, too, because I yeah. think that in Asian culture, like, nothing's ever enough. Nothing's ever enough, but also, like, for women, it's more attractive to be humble to an extreme. Right. Yeah. Right? To be, like, so humble. I think, like, I noticed that with my grandmothers, especially watching them, like, they cannot take a compliment for the life of them. That's right? True. Like, I'll tell them, like, they look beautiful, and you're like, oh, I'm so fat. Yeah. Like, <laughs> oh, my God. Okay. You know? <laughs> For those of you who don't know who are listening, Nani just turned 21. Yeah. yeah. Which is lit. I'm not, I'm not taking advantage of it. But okay. I well, I'm going to ask you, since you turned 21, have you actually gone out to like enjoy the life of a 21-year-old? You're so, no. you've done so much. You're so, you keep yourself yeah. busy. I but. went to one EDM concert, but like, and I was so excited. I wanted them to card me. And then I show up and it was like 18 and over. Oh. And I was so mad. Like, damn. I've been out to like for drinks and stuff like casually. But honestly, like the only place I've taken advantage of it is like I go to 
so many conferences and like meet uh, with people who are decades older than me and like now I can order a drink with them you yeah know? So, yeah so before you would go to the bar and be like oh I can only get a Diet Coke yeah well we should take you out LA if you're back next time yes I would love that but do you like hip-hop music do you like EDM music yeah dance has been like the way I've healed <sighs> everything right how so like did, oh, yeah, how yeah, so we, yeah. we honestly oh like goodness. where we stopped you were like damn this girl can also dance what the fuck like, <laughs> no, oh, yeah. well, that's just, so th- at Harvard when I went there I was like I signed up for every club and now the only thing I do there is I'm on the like competitive hip-hop team it was also how I started connecting with a lot of Asian people right? yeah because I had the same experience. yeah my yeah, two best fun. friends at Harvard are both Asian mm-hmm. right and complete dancers I sort of found people I really related to in the hip-hop scene Mm. because it was all these like Asian American people who struggled with their identity and also came from low-income backgrounds for Mm -hmm. the most part right so that's where I sort of found my crew yeah yeah so Janice also did hip-hop dance in college hip-hop dancer x many years ago I think once you are (laughs) you always are (laughs) but did you mention you actually did ballet growing up as well yeah you know because I grew up like pretty well off which is why I think like privilege is such a weird thing throughout my life because like yeah Yes, my background can attach to labels like homeless, but I also grew up in New York City, in yeah, Manhattan, yeah. doing, you know, pre-Juilliard programs on piano. And that way, I'm very much culturally Asian. You know? like, <laughs> in terms of, like, over doing a ton of things growing up and, like, doing, like, martial arts and, like, I did dance. I started doing, like, ballet at a really young age and then all through high school and middle school did, like, the Royal Academy of Dance track. So, like, doing a lot of ballet, yeah. So you explained to us kind of, like, the interesting nuances of how you grew up with your culture and your mom kind of reacting against this like tiger parent culture. Yeah. Do you think about for your own children, like how you would want to raise them and how much culture you want to bring in? I mean, my family jokes about how my mom isn't the tiger mom. I'm the tiger mom. Oh, of the family yeah. so it's going to go flip flop back yeah, and forth. Because, well, but I think it wasn't even that. It was like, I'm like that with my family, right? Mm-hmm. Like, so, and my mom sees this with me and my sisters. Like for me, she had to take away my homework and be like, no more. Oh. Stop studying ahead. Because I was so obsessed oh with work gosh. and excited. You're like, like Asian mom's like dream child. <laughs> Like, my mom would literally be like, please don't study anymore. Like, take time off. And I would just be like, no, I'm, I don't want to think about my thoughts. Like, I don't want to think about my feelings. So I would literally, like, do the next math unit. And I was always, like, really ahead in school or would beat myself up about, like, a B. And my mom would be like, it's okay. Don't yeah. worry. And I'd be like, I'm still going to fail. Like, <laughs> like, I was like that to myself. And then my mom actually has to stop me because I do that to my sisters. And, like, mm-hmm. very much I recognize that I sometimes bully my sisters about it. And, you know, it comes from, like, a place of, like, wanting the best for them. But yeah, I weirdly have this, like, own tiger mom in me. And like, it's really hard because like my youngest sister is all about singing and music mm-hmm. and does not care about school really mm-hmm. right so she does well but not to like my students yeah, yeah. so like I very much I'm like who do you think you are and I, I get mad at her for it and then I'm like okay I don't really know where you. this is coming from like I, I'm sorry right. like and I'm like that with my mom too like, and because my mom and I have this close relationship I'm like mom what are you doing like, get away. like yeah. and she's like don't yell at me I'm your mom <laughs> you know? so, I don't know how I'm gonna raise my kids no I do I don't know when I have the fucking time to have kids yeah. okay? but, like I loved having a mom who was like do what you want mm-hmm. you know let's talk about it like let's be best friends but also like I know that I put a lot of pressure on like myself and the people around me do your sisters since you do have so many like accolades and awards they look at you and they're like oh my gosh like my older sister is so accomplished and amazing or are they like oh she's such an annoying older sister annoying older really <laughs> I think it's annoying older sister and I more think that it's just like they don't follow what I do mm-hmm. right like my I've traveled so much my family never knows where I am they've never read my book they've never read the articles about me like, it isn't until like they come to an event with me and like see what I do that they're like oh I didn't realize you're a person beyond the family right yeah. so yeah I think they very much like respect what I do and they know about it but like I'm just so much like the dorky quirky nerdy sister mm-hmm. that that's who I am to them
my mom's one vocal rule growing up about dating was I, I could date whenever I wanted, but I, she did not want me to date Asian guys. She Whoa. did not. Yeah. yeah. She said no. No, because there's this idea in my family of like Asian culture is so patriarchal, mm. right? Okay. Which is pretty true, right? Like, yes, sort of matriarchal, like within the home. But I got really curious about it and did a lot of studying it in the last few years. But like, mm-hmm. yeah, like historically, Asian women are really empowered within certain confinements of like the home and like mm-hmm. kitchen and like childcare. But like in terms of like overall culture, culture like it's yeah. not empowering to women. Mm-hmm. And I think my mom saw that with her dad mm-hmm. and saw it with her, her ex-husband yeah. and saw that in her experiences and her brother so for her to what the narrative we grew up around is all asian men are patriarchal mm-hmm. assholes, right? oh. which is an extreme and yeah. i recognize that's extreme yeah. my boyfriend is like punjabi indian right oh, so okay when i first told her like one of her first reactions was like oh he's south asian right like what does that mean about his culture how does he think yeah. about women mm-hmm. she's completely just in feeling the way she does because she's been through so much mm-hmm. within that culture right it's been really interesting to like kind of live that out yeah 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 is she like constantly checking on you? Yeah. Really? And every time I complain about my boyfriend to her, oh. she's like, oh, it's because. Oh, okay. <laughs> Because of the culture. So, yeah, yeah. Dang. Wait, so how much older is your boyfriend? Are you guys the same age? He's about four years older. Yeah. It's a little bit older than me. Yeah. But it's very, I, so I live with him. I say I live in like a grown up frat house, basically, because I live with him and like his three other housemates from his college frat house oh my you goodness know? it's not just you two no we had very different college experiences my college experience was like working and running for office and like right. being not really liked you know for my lot of school because my run for office was really controversial uh-huh. for him he was like social chair of his frat uh-huh. of like beta or whatever yeah. and like very much lived it up in college yeah. Like, yeah and like you know loves his frat like diehard you know, so for we like live very different lives i know one of college. those yeah <laughs> max is a diehard frat oh, yeah. 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 yeah he's not too bad which is like why we work but yeah. like it's definitely we have like different approaches to life but i think it's good because it like balances mm-hmm. us out yeah you said your your run for office was super controversial why was that because harvard's really competitive right yeah. so for me like i it wasn't like oh another student's running for office this is so exciting it was like who does she think she is to be better than us to run for office right and at harvard like this is a type of school where like i know a lot of guys specifically who have the year they're going to run for president in their instagram bios right so it's this year of like a lot of people who do want to get into politics right and do want to go into that life so for them it's like this competitive thing Mm -hmm. you know so there's a lot of like public you know hatred on social media and it was a lot yeah I feel like you're so busy, right? And you have your boyfriend, but how do you manage your friendships? I feel like that's something it's hard. Like yeah. a lot of women who are, you know, working and like trying to balance their relationships. How do you balance it with like all these things on your plate? So my whole job is talking to so many people, yeah. right? Like throughout the day, I'm like talking to so many people, like shaking hands with so many people, like meeting with people, calls, whatever. And I think by the end of the day, I just want to like come home and Do, eat. Yeah, not you talk. Know? Yeah, like not yeah. talk, just like want to lie down, right? But I think that for me, I have a small group of friends who I might never see all the time, might not talk to for weeks, but like know that about me. And like, we're really close in that way, right? Or like one of my best friends, Josh Lee, who's from San Diego, actually, like we'll literally just be on like FaceTime while we work. And like, we just know that about each other Mm -hmm. and like we'll make fun of each other for it. But like when we're together, it's just like we left off, right? Mm -hmm. I think also like my sisters are like really good friends of mine and like having that background. And I think also finding people who are just as driven and like have support for each other within the community. Like I think Ali Mackey has been a huge example like Ali is someone when like we text all the time but like when we met in person like our whole thing was like how are you doing like are you taking care of yourself and all this stuff and we've only hung out once and we've only seen each other a little bit but I love her I very much identify as her like a big sister best friend yeah yeah but I think it's like finding people who know that about you right like and the friends who've stuck with me are the ones who know that if I don't text them 
every day or every week. Like it's not because I don't love them. My friends know that if they needed anything, like I will be there. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I think I make a really big effort. Like I have been the person when like my friend goes through a breakup, I'll buy a plane ticket and be there the next day. Right. Like I, I'm really committed to my friends, like when they need me most, but I'm not the friend who's going to like hang out and like smoke all day. Like I don't do that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So earlier we were talking about like the definition of success, right? How would you define success now? I don't know. <laughs> you know, I think it's interesting because growing up, I'm the narrative from my Taiwanese agoon. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He would always be like talking about money, right? Like money and status of success, right? Like, did you go to Harvard? Are you a professor? Do you have a law degree? Mm-hmm. What degrees do you have? Mm-hmm. What money do you have? Always bragging about how much money he had and how little money he came to the US with, yeah. right? Like yeah. that was very much the narrative I heard. So I think there is part of that that's instilled in me of like, and I try not to be like that. And I think a lot of it was also experiencing financial instability. That makes mm-hmm. you really sensitive to it, right? When you experience financial instability, it's like the worst thing. Yeah. You never yeah. want to experience it again. Yeah. And I think for me, I never really feel stable no matter how much money I have in the bank account. And I'm so fucking cheap. Like I have money, but I don't feel stable or successful Mm -hmm. right in that way. So I've tried it out. I've tried having the status of Harvard and these big names and these awards and I still don't feel successful. And I've tried having money and I don't really feel successful. I think for me, when I feel most successful is like when I get the email that like some young girl in the middle of nowhere who I've never met, like heard my message and now is now doing period work, right? Mm -hmm. Those are the emails that I'm like, okay, I can take a few hours to just like celebrate this and do yeah. nothing right yeah. i think it's those little wins yeah that's they're, they're spreading your message too like yeah. for you pretty much out yeah there. exactly i think that's a beautiful definition yeah. of success yeah because yeah. i think it's like the legacy that mm-hmm. you leave right and like mm-hmm. my mom would always tell me like a leader is someone who like empowers other people to be leaders right and i think that's why i'm so passionate about the chapter network and juve hiring other young people and paying everyone we hire because it's this idea of like I think I'm only as good of a leader if I'm making other people feel like leaders, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what I love about the period network is like at period Connor global conference, you see all these people who stand up and very proudly say, I am the period chapter president at X school and we have addressed this much and they're so proud of it and so excited about it and so driven. And I love that. And I think that those are the moments that make me feel like really successful. And that conference happens yearly and it's yeah. part of, it's because of the period movement. Yeah, so we host it. We host period. Oh, that's con, amazing. Period con every year. We had the last one in January, and had like you know 250 people fly in from all over the world, actually wow. from like Ethiopia, Mexico City, wow. Sweden, Scotland, and it's our global conference on the menstrual movement. I want to go. I know. It's, really <laughs> fun. It's, really, it's a lot of Asian American girls too. There's not a lot of Asian American activists who are like really public, right? Like that's the thing is like there's so many Asian American community organizers, right? Especially like labor movement has been so strong, but like not a lot of that is visible. Like it's mm-hmm. not on social media. It's not being funded by brands and period is now like supported by like all these big femcare brands yeah. and has more publicity so we had a lot of asian american girls who like email us being like nadia is the first person who looks like me yeah. doing mm-hmm. social activism and now i want to do it so we have a lot of people like annie wang yeah. you know, who read about me and then like wanted to take action and are now doing something and are excited about being like an asian american activist yeah that's, yeah. that's actually interesting one of our first female guests on this podcast is krista Sa. have you heard of her before mm-hmm. so she actually started the the pussy hat movement oh my gosh yeah and she's an Asian American woman and she's 30 years old yeah maybe a little younger the funny thing is that she said anyone that she met always thought the image of her would be this like 
this woman with like a buzz cut with yeah. like a white lady yeah. that has tattoos and she's just like this Asian woman that just started this movement. And th- a part of her is like, is that why I, I haven't been as like publicized as other people might have been if they had started the movement yeah. themselves? And I think a lot of like publicity to me is really exciting because like, you know, when I started getting to activism, there weren't any other Asian American mm-hmm, mm-hmm. activists that I could see, right? Like I, yes. I'm obsessed with Ai Poo, but like she's older and like is not as active on social media. And like, it's not something like you're, she's a public figure right. I don't really follow, right? right? So I think for me, when I started, I was like, I'm going to be active on Instagram and I'm going to talk about being Asian American. And I started writing for Next Shark and like after running for office, got really passionate about Asian American identity mm-hmm. because through running for office, I literally accidentally became like the youngest Asian American to run for office in the history of the U.S. So Mm. like I was being brought out to these conferences like APAX, right? Mm. As like the next Asian American, whatever. So like, and at those conferences was learning that like Asian Americans are the fastest growing minority population in the U.S., Mm -hmm. but more underrepresented at all levels of government and Mm -hmm. entertainment. It's really only been like the last two years that I've gotten really, really interested and excited about the Asian American identity. And that's actually what my next book is about too. Your next book I'm really excited. Wait, quick question. So you wrote a book in a month, your first book. How the hell did you do that? Because I feel like people are taking like years to write one book. You took one book in a month. I mean, okay, first of all, it obviously wasn't from like scratch, right? Because by then I had been giving my speech like every day for three or four years, Mm -hmm. right? So for me, I think it was a lot of like writing down what was already there, Mm. right? So my process for for writing was literally like talking out loud and typing as I go, right? Because it's it's all in my head already. Then it was just doing research, like literally Googling and putting in and just sitting down. I actually ended up writing in about two weeks because I did all the research and then I'm such a procrastinator. I just kept pushing it off. And then I actually wrote it because I got stuck at the Narito airport in Tokyo Mm -hmm. for 36 hours because of the big snowstorm there Uh last year. So I was on my way back from Singapore from a speech. I was in Singapore for 24 hours. I came back, got stuck at the airport and basically stayed up the whole time, wrote the majority of the book and then because of all my imposter syndrome had a really hard time editing because every time mm. I edited it I was like this is shit like mm. I would change it and then it would be totally different and my editors would be like we like the original one so I ended up just turning it in and so what you see is sort of like close to the first draft damn yeah but I edited it as I went because I was so hard on like what I was putting down yeah. on the paper yeah oh my god I could barely write a paper and like 24 hours in college. <laughs> but that's like, my thing is I can't edit, but I can write mm. because I can speak. And I, yeah. for me, I have to be in my own room because I'll talk out loud and, yeah. you know, write what I'm saying. So I'll just write like I'm very colloquial. That's how I do all my essays at school, right? So like... I used to do that too. Yeah. yeah. So like, I don't even read or like write anything until the night before it's due. And then I just pull in all night or have oh like gosh, three that Red That sounds Bulls. like me. Come yeah. on. Yeah, yeah, I do. I just, I'll just do it like from like midnight to 6 a.m. and turn in the paper and just be like that's exactly what I did yeah yeah. Yeah. I'd be like the last one to turn it in I'm like let me slip it under your door (laughs) I can't do this right as soon as I got into college I was like such a bad student like in high school I would never miss a class I would like always turn things in early and now I'm like can I get a 10 of extension I'm tired like I'm like I'm changing the world for the better okay let me have an extension on this paper but I think it's because there's no like you know and and because I know I don't want to go to graduate school so like my friends who are going to graduate school like need to get good grades Mm. but like there's no incentive. Yeah, yeah no, what you're doing like, right now is what people want to attain yeah, out of college. So. Like, and I don't envision working for someone else anyway. So yeah. like, it's hard to like get myself to try. Yeah. So are you planning to go back yes. to Harvard? I'm going to try to go back in the fall. Okay. Yeah. But I'm going to try to go to school like one day a week or two so I can keep doing everything else. Oh, but does that take longer then for you to graduate? No. You would still it just graduate means you have to time. take like 
seminar classes or fit oh, everything okay. into one day and yeah. do your work outside of that. Yeah. Back to period. Are there any products that you personally like to use? Menstrual cups. I'm a huge. Oh, are you? Yeah. I still I'm haven't obsessed. used one yet. What brand? Because there's a cup. Diva cup. Yeah. And the, I mean, that's just the one I was introduced from a really young age. I actually, I lost my Diva cup. Well, okay. That's a lie. How'd you lose <laughs> your Diva cup? <laughs> well, so I just like traveling, but also I've been using my Diva cup for like 10 years. Oh. Because I literally have not replaced it like, yeah it was emotional like my first diva cup. yeah, yeah. <laughs> and actually the founder of diva cup i told her i was like oh my gosh i love your product i've been using my for 10 years and she was speaking at our period con and she was like that's an issue she was like i'm proud to say it's like not a medical risk mm, okay. but like you should probably change replace it, it. Yeah. Yeah. so now i'm using a lena cup Oh, yeah, okay. which is like a smaller brand. Yeah, but there's so many out there. It's really exciting. But for me, I started using menstrual cups because of the waste. Yeah. Like one, I learned that the average tampon or pad takes five to eight centuries to decompose, which That's is insane. insane. Yeah. So they're one of the, actually the most, in terms of single use item, plastics is like one of the worst things for the environment. Mm -hmm. But then also like I think in an all girl household, when we're all on our period and our cycles sync up, like our trash can fills up every day yeah. really quickly. Right? Oh, yeah. And I yeah. think noticing that trash was like, especially growing up in Portland, that's so eco friendly was yeah. like noticing that and being like oh my god like feeling so much guilt around mm -hmm. it so i love the menstrual cup oh man that's kind of like tough because i'm thinking i'm thinking about straws you know how people are banning plastic yeah. straws it's like what if people start banning tampons at the same time we're trying to push out tampons to say this is something that women use and this is something that's, yeah. that shouldn't be i think there's, it's impossible to ban tampons or pads but i think what you can do is push companies to use better ingredients mm -hmm. right so there are there are organic like cotton yeah there are biodegradable yeah, yeah. there are cotton tampons the issue is that none of them are affordable right mm -hmm. so the the ones that are better for the environment and better for your body are like five times as more expensive right yeah so one of the things i'm trying to do actually in one of my meetings earlier today was like i think a dream of mine is to start a product company that yeah. solves all the issues because now i work with all these companies so i get to see what i like and what i don't like right. and the branding and everything like that so i'm curious as to like how that might play out yeah yeah well, i need to get a diva cup then i have i've had one for a long time but i'm just it just it just seems like so weird to like it's like i don't know how but think about this it's literally smaller than a <laughs> like, you know what I mean? Well, I mean, it looks kind of big, but I guess you can squeeze it together. I mean, yeah, but when you put it in, you fold it in half. Yeah, yeah. Like, yeah. If that's the biggest and, thing, like, <laughs> and there's a string right towards the bottom of it. That no, you can no, just, no. It's just a, a little thing. But your vagina is not that deep, right? Your average vagina is like what four to six inches, I think. So, like, really? in terms of like what it is, like, it's not that deep. So you just like barely put your fingers oh, in okay, and okay, squeeze, and it, squeeze it, out. Yeah. it out. Yeah. Okay. I love it mostly because on the go, like, so tampons you have to take out every eight hours. Yeah. It's like a health risk yeah. right, to leave it in. Menstrual cups, like, you should change it just mm -hmm. to empty it, but there's not a real health risk, mm -hmm. like TSS or anything. So when I was doing baseball or ballet, I'd be able to wear it for however long. Oh, yeah. wow. Was that the first uh, period product you used? Like, have you ever used? Did you No, use I, I started using tampons and pads, but only for one period. And then, like, <gasps> the second month, I was like, I need to try something We used else. tampons in your first period? Yeah. Whoa. Because uh, my mom was like, hell no, yeah. use the pad. Tampons are terrible for you. Don't stick anything up there. No, <laughs> my mom was all eco-friendly. So it was like, here is an extra large cardboard applicator tampon. Oh, <laughs> shoot. And it wasn't until my little sister that my mom was like, here's all the plastic, like beautiful plastic yeah, ones. But yeah. like with me, she was like, here's a cardboard. Here, yeah. And then when I was like complaining about the way she was like, okay, here's a menstrual cup. So my second time, like I remember my mom sat outside the door and I was like for 40 minutes was trying to put it in, put it out. Yeah. And I didn't even know there was like two holes. I like didn't, yeah, know yeah, I never fingered myself like nothing. Thing. I yeah, didn't even yeah. know that was a thing you know like so for me it was like I, I, it was a lot of work but like once you get it it's like it becomes yeah. second nature so yeah. do you ever have issues with like leaking at all no okay, I she's a leak every single time 
Because also, menstrual cups too? No, no, no. Well, with tampons. Mostly because I, I think about the environmental impact also. I'm like, I don't want to use that many tampons if I don't need to. So I leave it in there for as long as I can. But then it leaks because it gets too full. But that's the thing. So that's the thing about menstrual cups is you feel when you need to change it. Right? Oh, so, really? Yeah. Because like, and you'll learn. Like, obviously it takes some trial and error. Yeah. You feel the pressure because it fills mm. up. And then because it's suction so into your cervix, it yeah. like, it puts pressure on it. So it doesn't hurt. It just feels like a little bit heavy. Okay. You know, like it's just like you ate a little bit yeah, too yeah. much. And so I know when I have to change it. Yeah. yeah. So we had an episode about periods um, and poops. Periods and poops. <laughs> kind of combined that together. <laughs> but someone commented about how it was odd that like I mentioned that I leaked during the episode. And then she said something along the lines of like, oh, that's so gross. Like, how, how are you like 30 years old and you still leak? And I'm just like, this is a normal thing to talk about. Yeah. Like, how do we get out of that whole stigma or the taboo topic of just like periods in general and what women go through? I think it's just talking about it. Like, so much of the work that we do is just trying to get people to say the word period and not mm-hmm. wriggle. Right? Yeah. Like, when we're like, oh, we're talking about periods. Like, people are like, <laughs> like, it's just yeah. like yeah, this yeah. weird reaction. Right. And I think so much of it is like just talking about this in the normal way that it is, right? It's mm-hmm. not gross. It's not stigmatized. Yeah. It's like something that happens to your body, whatever. Yeah. Do you use any period tracking apps? No, but I'm going to try. I'm going to try to start because – so I had an IUD all last year and I still have one. But, you know, after you have an IUD for like a year, the hormones wear off so you start getting your period again, uh. which honestly I really don't like getting my period. Yeah. Like, I'm I was going to ask you, are you like no. every time you get your period, are you like, no. yes? I'm like I'm pro – period talk pro movement i am not pro getting my own period. Yeah. <laughs> it's a hassle it right? is, it is. and that's so much of the work we do is owning up to like yeah it kind of sucks so like how can we make it as easy as possible to right. everyone right but like for me i was so upset when i got my period but like now having that and being sexually active like your period suddenly is like this yay yeah, yeah. 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 No, i send it like yeah. a happy text message to my boyfriend every time he's like yay no yeah. dot yeah. i mean dot no exactly baby yeah. emoji and i'm actually so i'm not open to having period sex just because I'm still a little bit uncomfortable with it and like I think for me like my period is like my period I don't want to share it you know like so I'm actually people always assume I'm very pro period sex and I am in concept I'm like anyone do it and there are there is like scientific evidence that it's like better for your orgasm or like better for your health or whatever for me it's just not something I'm into and there's also the evidence of like it might you know push more blood that should be coming out mm-hmm. up and all this yeah. stuff so i think for me like when i'm on a period it's kind of like a sex break right mm-hmm. and so whenever i get my period my boyfriend's like oh and i'm like yeah but i'm not pregnant yeah. Like, yeah, let's celebrate. yeah i'm surprised he's like oh because a lot of guys are usually like oh that's icky like i don't want to touch you no he's so much more up than i am yeah yeah what are your next steps for the period movement so the big thing I'm working on right now is developing a national campaign that will launch this September. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to be sort of our fight to get, you know, everyone caring and talking about periods. So for the first time involving a lot of celebrities, I'm doing like a, you know, celebrity PSA call to action to the world to care about this. Doing like a really big integrated, you know, social campaign and talking to bigger brands that are outside of the femme care industry mm-hmm. um, to support it as well. And then I'm also looking into doing on that day when that comes out to figuring out a way to like activate protests all around the country we have about i think 50 confirmed interested now mm-hmm. but figuring out how we can build out this big monumental day that's like we're talking about periods yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. so i'm kind of doing that and then also we're continuing to grow this national campaign that we have to end period poverty in schools so i've been activating a lot of chapters on that what's next for nadia though in general so there's this documentary team that's following me i'm developing like a docu video series because for me in doing policy i fell in love with media because i realized like i kept coming up against this roadblock with 
legislators and teams being like, we can't pass policy because no one's talking about periods or no one prioritizes this, right? Mm -hmm. So we need a cultural shift right. that's going to talk about women's issues in a really, you know, natural way. Yeah. And so then also I think in noticing like my favorite part of my job is like being on camera and like being on stage. So trying to merge those two. And so my dream is to have like, I, I started as like, I want to talk show about periods. Yeah. And now it's like, I want a docu-series yeah. that sort of merges like, young activists doing this in the real world and what that looks like, but also like what is the menstrual movement around the world? What is the menstrual movement in different cultures? And what is the menstrual movement from different angles, right? Like wanting to interview Halsey about her experience with endometriosis or yeah. like, you know, wanting to talk about being a transgender man and getting your period. And mm. so I'm really interested in moving more into the media space as a thought leader to talk about periods from different angles. And I think the fact that this community is still so small, you're yeah. like literally at the forefront of it and you have mm -hmm. like so much room to grow yeah, there Yeah, and I think that we see anything that we do as an organization has this effect, right? right? So I'm really excited for it. And that's why I've been coming to LA so much and trying to figure out the whole entertainment yeah. world. But I'm really, really excited for it, yeah. How can our listeners help with the period movement? So you can just find out more and get involved at period.org or follow us on at period movement. We're always trying to get more chapters started, you know, get more people who want to do fundraisers or packing parties or just support on social media. And you can find me at Nadia Okamoto on social media. love it when it's uh, another Asian American boss woman yeah. who's yes. leading these and we're trying to get more Asian American like just females who are yeah. entrepreneurs in their own sense to come on our podcast and you talk know, about I've what they do. I've never embraced so. ABG as a term. I've always been like I am not an ABG and oh, I feel like I'm going to embrace being an yes, Asian girl. girl. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much Nadia. This has been amazing. I feel like we've all learned so much. <laughs> of course. And so inspiring too. Thank you for having me. All right, everyone, thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find us on social at Asian Boss Girl. Our email is asianbossgirl at gmail.com. We're also on Spotify, iTunes, and all of the podcasting platforms. Leave us a rating or review if you like what you're hearing. And we will catch you on the next episode. Bye. Bye.